just a, uh, a feeling that we get as parents or if you're a grandparent or even as a, a coach or a teacher or someone who influences rising generations in any kind of way, there is that responsibility that you feel as far as passing on something that will give them the ability to do something or function in some way in society or at a base level embarrass you a little less. <laughs> there is uh, this uh, pressure that you feel. And I, I, I don't know if uh, you have the same stories as me or stuff, but when my kids were born, uh, especially my first son, I remember standing in that hospital room and all of a sudden I was a dad and I hadn't done anything to be qualified to be a dad, to be qualified to be a dad. Uh, to, I didn't know what I was supposed to do with this human who was looking at me and saying, so how does the world work or what's good and what's not good and tell me how people react, you know, and you're, so I have a distinct memory in the hospital room and I know where I stand, I know what they were doing and I had a I'm not good at hospitals, and so I remember that feeling too. But when both my kids were born, I had a pass-out chair behind me. And I didn't pass out either time, score, but it was close. <laughs> but uh, there is just that uh, feeling of pressure that hits you in a moment, and from what I hear, never actually leaves you. Even when your kids move out, I hear from my parents that they think about what we're doing, they pray for us, and they wonder and hope that they've done the right thing and given us everything we need in order to achieve everything that they've dreamed of us have doing and having and everything that God dreams uh, for our life. And so we're going to uh, be, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 today, or if you open that on an app, it'll be on the screen as well um, so that you can see it. But uh, as we uh, go through this, there is just kind of a... Uh, um, there is, so you know, we as a church subscribe to something called Right Now Media, and uh, the church has a monthly subscription so that whoever wants it can have free accounts, and you can get that through uh, the church website or the church's Facebook group or just talk to somebody and, uh, like at the go table or something, and they can help you get hooked up on that. The, it Starts at Home is actually an organization, and there's a video series on Right Now Media with lots of discussion and good biblical teaching as far as uh, how this works out in a practical way. And we're going to talk a little more about the theology and scripture behind things and move towards practicality, but they have uh, like family uh, specialists or family therapists who uh, speak in these videos and Christian pastors who have a lot of experience to be able to help you uh, raise your kids in the way that you would dream of as far as passing your faith on to your children. So um, we're going to read through this scripture together. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by a guy named Paul who was an apostle of Jesus, meaning he um, was a, like a leader in the very, very early church. And he wrote, he actually probably wrote five letters to the church in Corinth. And, uh, and we have two of them that we still have and have made it into, made the cut into the Bible. Uh, the other three are just written about, so we don't know what's in them, although we have an idea of what was said in them contextually. Um, the city of Corinth, if you uh, don't know where that is, it's uh, kind of around the Mediterranean on the north side, and it was a city where it was easier in those days to land your ship on one side, uh, because ships were the major way of moving long distances, because they didn't have any other way but walking or riding a horse. And so they would land a ship, and there was an entire economy that would unload the ship, walk it across this peninsula, and put it in another ship. And it was cheaper to do that than to sail around the end of the peninsula. And so you had this uh, city which had two sailing ports, and so it had twice the number of sailors who were landing, 
And the major religion up on the hill uh, was a god that you worshipped through temple prostitution. And so you can imagine what that, would, uh, what that city or that environment would be like, and you can imagine the kind of people who were becoming Christians. He wasn't writing, Paul didn't write them to talk about uh, Calvinism and Arminianism or predestination. He wrote them to say, hey, you shouldn't be marrying your stepmom. And uh, this is the kind of, you, that's funny, uh, but this is the kind of culture that those people were, these early Christians were living in when they were trying to figure out what Christianity even was and Paul was writing to them. And so he's writing this little section that we're going to read and kind of describes what it is to be a church and what it is to be a Christian in a community of other Christians. And so I'm going to read from 12 to 22, verses 12 to 22, um, but we'll talk about them as we go. I won't read all the way through, all right? So verse 12 says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, and he's talking about a physical body, uh, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And I'll stop there just for a second. For just as the, one, the body is one, when you are a person, and he's given an easy illustration for them, you're made up of one body. And even though everything that makes up your body is different, you're still just one body, right? You have ears and knees and toes and fingers, and, but all of that is one you. Uh, and the yous look different and things like that, but in, uh, if for a person, you have j- there's no people with two bodies. That doesn't exist. Uh, there's no people with bodies that, are just, uh, that aren't made up of different parts. And so when he says that, he says, so it's the same thing for the body of Christ, meaning the church, or meaning the collection of believers uh, in any place or in any time. So that our church, God sees as functioning in the same way a body functions. There's many members, many different parts, but together we are one. And then our church plays that same role with like the church in Albany. There's many different parts, there are many different kinds of churches with different expressions, and each plays an important role Without one, we would say that body doesn't have something that we wish it did. And and so it all functions that way. Then, in a global sense, the same kind of thing happens. Western Christians uh, play a particular role. Eastern Christians, Southern Hemisphere Christians, all play different roles, and Christ considers them part of the body. And the illustration that he gives in verse 13 is, for we are in one spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God, we were baptized into one body. And he gives these classifications that they would see in society, Jews or Greeks, and Greeks was a word that Jews used to describe non-Jews. You were either Jewish or you were Greek, or sometimes they used the word Gentile, uh, or slaves or free, and those were the two basic economic classes. You were a slave or you were free. In their culture, they didn't see, like we see slavery as something that shouldn't happen, and they saw slavery as just a regular part of life. It was a financial reality for a lot of people. If you got yourself into a bad situation financially, you became a slave, and that was how you would pay your debts off. Um, Or you were born a slave, and that was just how your life was, and maybe someday you would be freed, and maybe not. But it was never seen as something that was like morally good or morally bad until the Christians started seeing it that way. Uh, But in this church... He's, what Paul is saying to this very early church, this very early group of Christians, you're like a group, and you're all different, 
And some of you are Jews, some of you are not Jews, or you're Greeks, some of you are slaves, some of you are free, but in this, you're all one. In this, you're all together. So if we can back up for a second, I don't, I don't ever want to teach a parenting series like how to parent. I'm barely figuring out how to parent my two. I don't know how to parent yours, right? Uh, there is, well, yes, I do. I probably know. <laughs> I can give you great advice and I don't have to deal with it. So do these seven things and everything will work out. So, uh, and you'll wonder what's wrong with you, not what's wrong with me. That's how parenting books work. But uh, the only, I know how to parent my kids. Or, sorry, I'm learning how to parent my kids. But what the Bible actually does teach us, though, is how to pass our faith on to our kids. And so when we talk about parenting, that is really, that's my primary goal in parenting, to help my kids learn and know Jesus in a saving way. And I can mess up everything else, or they can make all sorts of different choices as far as what they want to do in their life and goals and aspirations and relationships. But this is the core that I actually care about, that they are having a personal saving relationship with Jesus. And so when we talk about parenting, I'm really talking about passing your faith on. And so if you're not a believer today, some of what I say might just not be helpful. Uh, because I think that the key component to parenting is passing on your faith to the next generation. If I fail in that, I don't really care about succeeding in the other things. Uh, and that might just be my personal thing. I, I think that's the Christian way of parenting is that I have this thing that is the most important thing to me and I hope to share that with my kids. They can make their own choice about it. Like I'm not saying I'm a failure if my choose, kids choose not to follow Jesus, but I would consider it a failure if my kids don't know that Jesus loves them and, and know that because of my belief system it affects the way that I raise them and love them. And so, uh, does that make sense? I'm not, so if someday my, my son's here. I'll kick your butt if you don't show up in church next week. But, um, <laughs> but there is a... Uh, I won't literally kick his butt. Uh, that's uh, okay. <laughs> the, uh, but there, um, there are, like I want to raise my kids with free will so that they understand what love is, not with uh, overwhelming guilt that compels them in order that they do the things that they think impresses dad. All right? So when all of this is going, when I'm talking about all of this, if you don't follow Jesus or you don't have any interest in Jesus, some of it might fall flat, and I'm sorry for that. You can read a parenting book and feel guilty that way, but um, this is a letter written to the church about who they are. So this is what I'm talking about, is a talk to the Christians about who we are. And this is how he continues in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Or if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? Where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As, is, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. It's kind of a, if you're allowed to laugh at this mental picture that you have when Paul says, if your whole body was just an eyeball, uh, where would it be? And you'd be like, well, I'd be rolling through life because uh, you're an eyeball. And you'd be like, oh, I saw it, now I don't. Now I saw it, now I don't. And, and you'd constantly have things like dirt in your eyes and no hands to wipe it out. And so... 
you'd have to depend on other eyeballs or something like that to help you clean yourself. But there's, you're allowed, I think it's written in order to be funny. Or if your whole body was just an ear, you would just be uh, saying, I heard that, I heard that, and then you'd never be able to do anything about it. Um, the, uh, to understand this, a lot of times when you think of a church as a body, the churches will sometimes think that everyone should be the same, right? Like we're the church of people who are like this. And what the scripture teaches is if you're only trying to reach a certain kind of person or you say, this is the church for people who are like this specific group, and it was Western churches, we tend to do this, uh, then you start to fall apart or lose some of what the body is. In our context in Western churches, we have certain things that we like or appreciate or the ways culturally that we understand the Bible. Like, for instance, we do our music rather aggressively and loudly and contemporarily, right? And there are people who that's not how they want to worship. And if we say, well, this is how everyone needs to do it, then we start to lose some of the things that maybe other expressions of faith have to offer. Not just in our city, but in a global sense. There was a time in, as missionaries would go over and not just teach people to be Christians, but teach them to be the American or Canadian or Western expression of what a Christian is. Like when you go to church, you wear a tie. And these people have never seen a tie and didn't understand why you'd tie something around your neck that someone can grab like that. That doesn't make any sense. All right? And it still doesn't to this day. But uh, there is... When we start to do that or think you need to express your faith in the same way that we express our faith, we actually lose the contribution that that part could give us. When we start to try to see with our ears, then we lose the contribution that our ears give to who we are, namely hearing. When we decide that we're not going to use our feet to walk, we're going to walk on our hands, our feet cease to be able to contribute to what's going on in our life or in our world. So when we're talking about a body, this is the expression. And that body, biblically, narrows down to a family or a household. In your family, if you were all the same, there would be people in your family who aren't able to contribute what they wanted to contribute. There's a good chance that at some point in your life, maybe when you were growing up, you wondered why you weren't like everyone else in your family. Uh, there's probably, and this is probably just a part of adulthood or becoming an emerging adulthood, is noticing that you're different in some ways from other people in your family. And it might have been a really negative thing in your family where someone said to you, why can't you be more like this other person? Or why, and maybe it's not even in your family, why can't you be like their kid, my friend's kid who behaves and doesn't do the things that you do. Or maybe you were that kid that I was always compared to. <laughs> and you knew you actually weren't that good. You just knew how to hide it better than I did. There is this pressure that you feel when you notice that you're different. Because when you're a kid, right? When you're a very little kid, your goal in life is basically to copy the people who are best at everything. And mom and dad, or mom or dad are the best at everything, right? They provide for you, they keep you safe, they know the, when you need the things that you need, and so eventually I want to be like them because they're really good in my mind, they're really good. And that's at a very, very young age, like under seven, that's your concept of the world. Here's who's good, they feed me, give me a place to eat, they're hilarious, 
and, and I love them, right? And, and they love me. And eventually you get to a place where you're like, wow, my dad's not as funny as I thought he was, <laughs> right? And that's not, like as a dad, let me say, yes, we are funny. It's your lack of appreciation of our style of humor, young people. <laughs> we are very funny. Just ask the other dads. We are hilarious. <laughs> there is this movement that happens where you start to be able to have your own thoughts and be able to have your own concept of who you want to be and that's actually a wonderful thing but there's a little bit of pressure that a person feels a young person feels and if you're here and you're young you probably feel this maybe right now that you think you want to be a little bit different than what's been modeled in your home and there's a pressure that you won't be accepted or you, because you're going to or you want to be different. What the Bible teaches is that if as, as parents we're pushing on those children who are in our home and are a part of our family to conform to some kind of ideal or conform to who we are or conform to who their sibling are, is or, or conform to someone else or anything, what we run into is that we're putting an unbiblical expectation on them and robbing the family unit of a contribution that a person could be making to this body. Sometimes, like I, I have a, one ankle that works really good and one ankle that doesn't work so good, and I'll say, why can't you work as good as that other ankle? And my right ankle is saying, why don't you just love me for who I am? And why don't we sit down and put some ice on this? <laughs> right? Sometimes we do that in our families. Sometimes we do that with people that we have responsibility over or that we have influence over. Instead of being able to celebrate who they are and encourage that, we fall into this trap of wishing that they would respond to the way that we have an expectation. If you have more than one child you quickly learn that there's a conspiracy against you as parents, right? Because like, you spend most of number one's life figuring out how to parent, and then you figure, I'm going to apply that to number two. And you learn that number two has talked to number one and has completely changed the rules. And if you have a number three and four and five and six, you learn that some, at, I don't know when, but at some point they're communicating with each other and saying, hey, when mom and dad did this, sent me to my room, it was awful, so you pretend it's awesome, all right? And you send, all right, everyone go to your room, and number two is like, score! And you're like, oh, that's not a good punishment. How do I figure out, all right, you go to your room, and you go to his room too, and, and number one is like, score! And you're like, they, there's, anytime you have more than two, I have a ton of respect to you, because man-to-man defense doesn't work anymore. You have to kind of zone up and you know there's going to be an open space and one of them is going to catch and score a touchdown on you. And as parents, you've set yourselves up to lose. So um, if you feel like you're losing, that's a normal feeling as a parent, I think. <laughs> there is, but there is, when you interact with your children, and maybe, you, maybe this isn't as true in your family as some other families, you'll probably eventually notice that they're different. You'll probably eventually notice, even if you have any relationships with any people, the relationships that you have are different 
and that people behave differently, and if you can actually appreciate those differences and appreciate the contribution that those different people are making. Because according to the Bible, and this, this is like point number one, I have three actual points if you take notes, this is like a score for you today, is that everyone in your family or everyone in the church has something to contribute because of their inherent gifts and their inherent abilities. Everyone. And there's some people in your family that their contribution so far is being cute and keeping you from sleeping, right? Like that's their, con- they're very, very young, they're cute, and they know how to process food and turn it into fertilizer, and then you actually are able to smile and cute, and maybe they help you get bumped up in the grocery store line. Like there's, here's how you contribute to our family, you help us move forward in the line or when you cry and everybody's annoyed at you. Uh, <laughs> there is... Like that's, or if you're in a conversation you want to be out of and you can actually squeeze your baby's leg and they start crying, oh, I got to go, right? <laughs> you're acting like you don't do that, right? <laughs> or you're acting like really like, oh, no, I need to laugh too because that's, that's not something that I would do. And really you're mad that you didn't think of that first, right? So. <laughs> Or you're wondering why it's awkward why I carry my 12-year-old around sometimes and, and pinch him. And, oh, we got to go. He's, he just punched me in the face. But there is this, there is, <laughs> there is a contribution that even the people in your family who you think aren't making a contribution or you can't think of a, like, they aren't, maybe don't have a job or they're not cooking or cleaning or something like that or not functioning in that way. The Bible teaches that every single person who's in your family contributes in some way. When we run into pressure or stressful situations is when we expect their contribution to be different than they've been gifted or they've been given abilities or training or education to be able to do. And we say, why can't you be like this? Or why don't you do this? And the very real answer might be that they're an ear and you're asking them to be an eyeball. And they are this, and your expectation is for them to be something else. And so these differences, according to the Scripture, should actually be celebrated, because as it is, we are one body, but they have many parts. This is verse 21, as, as it, the conversation, and bet you can hear this conversation in your family. The eye cannot say to your hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. It was uh, growing up in Canada, I was well aware that the greatest athlete to ever exist on the face of the earth was a guy named Wayne Gretzky. Uh, Wayne Gretzky was much better than anyone who you think about anything. Uh, and I have real facts to argue against you. Um, but Wayne Gretzky, when I was a kid, was all there was and all that I cared about. And I'm a terrible hockey player, but I understood Wayne Gretzky. And at one time, Wayne Gretzky took a shot to the ear, and he had an inner ear imbalance problem inside his ear. And what happened was, all of a sudden, he played hockey, frankly, like me. <laughs> Stumbling around like a newborn deer on the ice, and uh, nothing working because of a tiny little problem that was happening inside his ear. If you're a basketball fan, one of the most dominant players of this generation was Shaquille O'Neal, who had problems with one of his big toes. 
The guy is 300 and some pounds, seven foot something, and he has a toe, although his toe is probably a lot larger than your toes. It's one of the smallest parts of his body, and it derailed the end of his career. When you see people uh, who suffer from illnesses, it's very often a very small part of them that's actually misfunctioning. When you have someone, who, when you have a cold or you have um, some kind of affliction on you, it's usually affecting a very small part of you. And there's actually a lot of you that's working very, very well. It's rarely that you go to the doctor and say, 90% of the function of my body is not working, right? It's like I've got this one thing that's not working right and it needs to be fixed or I need to figure it out because when this one part suffers or this smaller part suffers, it's, we learn that it's indispensable. The same thing is true in a church and the same thing is true in your family. If your family is going to be or become who you think it could be or who God dreams of your family being, the small indispensable people in your family, the small gifts, the things that seem insignificant actually are seen as indispensable to who you are as a group or who you are as a unit. If you have children in your home still or you're a teacher or a coach and you're able to tell someone who would naturally feel like they're not making a large contribution to your family, you're indispensable to who we are as a group. Do you know how affirming that is? And you know how, and that's biblical. It's not just blowing smoke. Like the Bible teaches us, and you can tell this to your kids. Pastor James said, the Bible teaches us that without you, we're not us. Without you, we're not who we could be. And your contribution, we might not even know what it is right now, but we know that we need it. <laughs> And those differences, instead of being something, this is kind of point number two, instead of being something that you try to squash or roll over or fix, those differences become celebrated. And you're able to say that because you're who you are, we are who we are. The, your physical ability is affected by every single part of your body. Small balancing things in your inner ear and your big toe actually have helped you today more than you know. And you think it's just a part of you that got up and like your legs are probably the most important because they moved you from one place to the other or your brain is probably the most important because it uh, responded to the alarm clock next to your bed or the crying child down the hall or something like that. But there are parts of you that are insanely tiny that have made a huge contribution to your being able to be where you are today, to your being able to move through your life from the time you woke up to right now. Indispensable parts that you probably don't recognize. You probably don't like pray and say, thank you, Jesus, for my inner ear balance. <laughs> you probably haven't said that. But if you didn't have it, I've been, you got it back. I bet you you would be pretty thankful. Or if you didn't have it, I bet you all of a sudden it would become a part of your prayer. When you haven't prayed to thanking God for random organs in your body functioning well and then you run into one of them not functioning well, all of a sudden you're aware of it and you're aware of the indispensable nature of things that we didn't think. And so you start celebrating the differences 
that exist in your own body, and you can start celebrating the differences that exist in your church and start celebrating the differences that exist in your family. If everyone in your family was exactly like you, you would be in a terrible family. (laughs) Right? You might be too nice and people walk all over you, or you might be too mean and you walk all over everyone else. If everyone in your church is exactly like you, you're in a terrible church because they're all exactly like you. If everyone here was exactly like me, good night, right? I can get an amen from my own family right there. But there is this concept that we struggle with because we want people to achieve what we've achieved and then as parents or teachers or coaches or mentors, all of a sudden somebody doesn't do things the way that you do things and it becomes a really confusing thing. And I think that's the third part to this if you have a one, two, three points. The one is that we all are different. Two is that we should celebrate those differences. And three is that these differences can actually affect and they extend to your interactions with the people around you and your interactions with God. Your interactions, not just with each other, but your interactions and your understanding of God. And this is why I struggle as far as telling you, this is what you need to do. Here's the four steps to raising a kid and passing your faith on to them. I know some parents, friends of mine, who forced their children to go to church their entire lives. They didn't want to, they forced them. And I know parents who the kids turned around and said, you know what, you forced me to, and it got in there, and now today I follow Jesus because of that. And I know kids who say the opposite. You know what? You forced me to go to church. It made me hate it more. And now I'm not a Christian because you shoved it down my throat. And those parents did the same things, right? And the parents both had the same intentions. They wanted their kid to know Jesus. And they ended up with this weird tension of what's the right thing to do? And they tried something, and maybe it was right, maybe it was wrong. And maybe the kid thinks it was wrong, but it was actually right. And maybe the kid's reaction to it doesn't affect whether it's right or wrong. And so when you're faced with these kinds of decisions, and these are easy things, or if you run into a a kid who does a sport or an activity and you say, well, if you have a game on Sunday, you don't go. I know parents who've done that, and they've done that with all their kids, and some of those kids saw that as meaningful, and some of those kids saw that as destructive. Who knows? And so when it comes to like how to actually parent your kids on that specific issue, I don't have a, really an answer. I think the answer might be to understand that your kids might interact with Jesus in a different way than you do. And the important thing might be that they interact with Jesus. And so the right answer might be you wake their butt up and force them to go to church. And they're miserable and it makes your Sunday miserable and really you're punishing yourself. And, but... On the other hand, maybe the right answer is you go out the door and you come home and they're still in bed. Slackers. (laughs) And you're miserable. (laughs) So there isn't, I think, this scripture doesn't teach us, here's the six things to do that will turn your kid out perfectly. It's a lot more of your kid is someone, and not just your kid, you, your spouse, the other people in your church, the people that you have influence over, employees that you supervise, they're all made with different abilities and different strengths. 
And the way that God sees the group of Christians put together is like a body, and those differences should actually be celebrated and contributions should be made. The scripture actually goes down. I'm going to read verse 26 and 27. It says this, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If one person in your family suffers, all suffer with them. And not just like in a, in a way like, oh, they're sad, so we're all sad. If one person in your family isn't living out their role in your family, then your family actually isn't experiencing everything that it could be. And I would say this is true, and it's not like, uh, this is true in large families, this is true for single people who live on their own or single parent homes or empty nesters, this is true. That the people in your life are playing roles in your life that make you more than who you are currently. And you're doing the same for other people in their lives. And if one person in that body suffers, everyone suffers. And if one person is rejoicing and doing well, everybody is enjoying that. Here's what that means like on a church level. If you have gifts and abilities and you've decided not to use those, the rest of everyone is suffering. If you have gifts and abilities and you've used those and you're using them above and beyond, everyone else is benefiting. As you're rejoicing and enjoying the favor of God in your life, that pours out on everyone else. And if you're acting in disobedience and avoiding God's call on your life, Everyone else is suffering from that. And it's not just big things or little things, right? Like God might be speaking to you and you, this is what I want you to do and you might be saying, no, I'm not going to do that. It's not just you that's having an argument with God. It's everyone else around you that's suffering. And God might be calling you to something with your family or in your family and your refusal to do that isn't just about you and God. Like I think you have a personal relationship with God but not a private relationship with God. And your interactions with God is affecting the people in your family. And your obedience or lack of obedience is affecting the people in your family because it's affecting your ability to interact with God and then pass on and learn how others can interact, other, like your children, how they want to interact with God or how they will naturally interact with God. There are these sheets when you check in your kids um, through these papers that have activities to do at home, or if you've watched the videos, um, the videos are sometimes aimed, if you've watched the videos, they're aimed at younger children, um, and uh, they're like, the, the one dad carried his whole family up the stairs, younger children, right? If your children are teenagers, they're probably, oh, I got a call, I got to go, <laughs> right? But, but there is uh, these activity sheets that are actually available there to have different age groups, and the intentionality of passing on your faith through these family night activities isn't about teaching your kids that Christianity is a certain level of cheesy. It's more about you studying your kids. Because if you do an activity and you notice all your kids hated that activity, I would bet whatever that activity was isn't the way that your kids want to interact with God. If you're carrying your kids up and down the stairs and they're like, this is the worst night of my life, probably not the way your kids want to interact and learn about God. <laughs> I would find a new way. <laughs> Maybe ask them since they're 17. 
But here's an, a really easy activity, all ages. And I don't normally do here's your homework, but here's like your real life homework. Is actually take a piece of paper, sit down together, and your kids are going to think this is stupid. They won't at the end, trust me. And write down a number, like one, two, three, and write down three things that are unique about yourself. Write your name at the top. Write down three things that you think you make a unique contribution to your family. Maybe you have a job and you contribute financially. Maybe you're the only one that knows how to cook, right? Maybe you take out the garbage, right? Like, I'm the one that takes the garbage out. And if I didn't take the garbage out, it's been proven nobody will, <laughs> right? I'm the one that goes around and turns all the lights off, right? I'm the one that saves on the gas bill because I'm the one that doesn't think it should be 75 degrees in here, right? Here's my contribution. Write your name and then pass it to the right and write down the contribution of the other people. And it will actually force you to study. As, a, as a kids will write down cheesy stuff. Mom does this, dad does this, brother does this, sister does this, they let me play with their toys, right? But this activity will actually force you to think about the contribution that each one of your kids is making to the family. And you'll actually be able to see, like, this kid is genuinely funny. Like, we would not laugh as much if this silly kid wasn't doing the silly things they do. They don't pay attention in class. They don't get good grades. They may never get a full-time job. <laughs> but this kid is funny, <laughs> right? Don't write down those negative things. Those are fears. Don't write down your fears, but write down, like, number one, you're hilarious, right? Number one, you're a hard worker. Number one, you smile a lot, and everybody in our family smiles more because you smile a lot. And then number two, number two, you actually show us that good grades are possible, <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry, number one, <laughs> right? But you know, this isn't the case for my family. I'm making these up. But there is, like, you're able to actually study your kids in a way that at the end, like, I promise you give your kid that sheet at the end, they're putting it somewhere special. Some of you, I would bet, have in a drawer or a chest somewhere a note or a letter from a parent that said something to you that made you believe in yourself. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a mentor. I have an email file. It's called my keeper file of every good email I get. I have a file in my file cabinet called my keeper file. And it's every time someone sends me a card and says, hey, anything better than you suck. It's like, that's going in there, right? Like, that sermon was the best one so far. Too bad it took you six years to get there. That's going in there, right? <laughs> I'm like, that is, it only took me six years, but we're there. <laughs> everything, I, I keep those things because they're so meaningful to me. And I have, there are special things in there from people who are really, really close to me that go in those files and go in those drawers. And what would it mean to your kid, and your kid might be the eyeball, it might be the inner ear, your kid might be the ear of your family or something, your kid might be the armpit of your family. <laughs> But you're putting this thing into that and saying, you are this for us. And you're not just studying that person, but you're saying, you're made by God in a way that is meaningful and God believes in you and made you the way you are on purpose. 
And so eventually, as they're getting older and they're faced with pressure from the outside, and the older you get, that pressure just grows. If you're an adult, you know that pressure hasn't gone away. It's only grown that there's an expectation on who you are, the way you behave, the way you dress, the things you say, the income you have, the neighborhood you live in. There's pressures. And to have something you can go back to that says, I'm made in a particular way by God and I have to be the best me that I possibly can be in order that the dreams that God has for my family and my church and my body of Christ will actually take place. Wouldn't you love that if you had that and as a parent or a coach or a teacher, what's stopping you from starting that file for your kids? My kids go to a school where they actually do this practice in a very low grade, like first or second grade. And both of my kids, one of them still has it up, have this on their wall, and it's just several sentences about good things about themselves. I don't know who the teacher was, and they're easily my favorite teacher. Easily. They, maybe, they definitely exceed the standard. Because my kid, and they're cheesy things, like, you can catch a football. Great, <laughs> right? Like that's, well, I guess for a young kid, that's a skill. But for the rest of us, that shouldn't be a skill anymore. <laughs> but... Well, maybe it should be. I apologize if you've been hit in the face recently with a football. But, <laughs> <laughs> but there are very low-level compliments on there, and their kid sees that. My kid sees that every day and goes, hey, look at this. Other people see positive things in me, and someday when I can't see positive things in me, this will help me to know that there are positive things in me. And as a parent, you'll start to study your kids and understand your kids and understand how to raise them. Not how to raise a miniature you, but how to raise them because Jesus believes in who they are and so we believe in who they are just like Jesus believes in who we are and so we're hopefully able to believe in who we are in the same way. Let's stand and let's pray, all right? So you have like real live homework this week. Does everyone understand that? We'll put something up on Facebook to remind you, but it's like real live, like I'm gonna stand at the door and ask next week, all right? Like, hey, did you do this? And you'll say no, and I will shame you. <laughs> I will look at you like this. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't work on my kids either. All right. Lord, we are thankful in a very real way in our hearts for the opportunities that you've given us to pass on you and a love for you to people who we have influence on. In a basic way, we pray that way for our children, but we also pray that way for nieces and nephews and students and players on teams that we coach or employees that we oversee or we manage. And God, I pray that you would give us eyes to be able to see two things. First of all, to be able to see the uniqueness that you've put in them, and then eyes to be able to see the uniqueness that you've put in us. And while we may be a certain way, we pray that you would enable us to raise the people that we're responsible for in the best way that they are. Thank you for the little victories. And we pray for your grace and your mercy and the confusion as kid number one is so different than kid number six. And we are so different when we are raising one from when we're raising the next one and the next one. But Lord, we just ask for your grace in this situation when we ask particularly that you would show us the contribution that the people are making around us to being the body of Christ. We thank you for allowing us to participate and allowing 
even the most smallest contribution in our church and in our families to be indispensable. By your name we pray this. By your grace. Amen.